when podcasting was just like starting getting big, they podcast studios would pop up and make like a bunch of different true crime podcasts, or a bunch of different scary story podcasts. I think you could do that now. Like you could become really good at making TikTok videos and you can make, you know, become a TikTok studio and do TikTok videos for all different types of things. You're listening to Making It with John Davids. Before we get to today's episode, I want to ask you guys for a big favor. Go ahead and follow or subscribe and leave a rating or review on this podcast. It goes a long way. It helps people find the show and it lets us know that we're doing something right. Okay, on to today's episode. Today, my guest was Colin Keeley. Now, Colin is an entrepreneur, an investor, and he's got a company called Vern, V-E-R-N-E. Website is vernhq.com. You can also check out Colin on Twitter at Colin Keeley. So Colin is in the micro private equity space. And this is an area that I'm super interested in because I'm also involved in it as well. Uh, So micro private equity is like private equity. It's investing in businesses. And micro just means you're doing it at a smaller level. You're investing generally in smaller companies, smaller amounts of money, but you can do really, really well. And I'm engaged with a lot of micro PE players. uh, So we're going to have them on as guests uh, over time. Colin and I talk about a number of things. So we definitely get into Vern, the micro PE space, how he's doing it, how he's making his investments. We talk a little bit about cryptocurrency and uh, decentralized finance or DeFi, which is something that I know very little about. So I'm learning as I go along. And we also get into these operating manuals. So the way I discovered Colin was with the operating manuals that he he writes. He basically looks at a business or looks at an individual entrepreneur or business founder, and then writes an operating manual for how they run their business, how they build their business. And I found this super interesting. We also talk a little bit about creating in public or becoming a creator or a social media influencer who builds their company for everyone to see, uh, which is a really interesting intersection between influencers and entrepreneurs. Um, it's an area that I play in as well. So anyhow, thought it was a really interesting conversation. It's a bit all over the place. We cover a lot of ground over about 45 minutes. So hope you enjoy. Take a listen right now. Colin, thank you so much for coming in. So whereabouts are you? Uh, Chicago. Chicago. Okay. You, were you born and raised or you moved there recently? I grew up in the suburbs. I went to school in Minnesota, lived out there for a while, and then came back here six years ago or so. So I've, uh, I mean, I discovered you through uh, your podcast. I've been seeing your your stuff on Twitter. And I don't know, I'd love to just get your backstory, but it seems like my take, and you can tell me if I'm right or wrong, is you have been doing this uh, micro private equity thing for maybe a year or two. And I'd love to kind of hear how you got started in that and what, what led you to that. So background before that, a bunch of different startup businesses, TV, movie recommendations, started a stretchy jean company for guys at a sharing economy startup, uh, you know, financial lending startup, a bunch of different things. Through that process, I pitched a VC who didn't like my business, but liked me well enough and hired me. So that was Builders VC. And we uh, that's where I met my business partner, Brent Sanders. And so we were a Series A fund, but we we're also a startup studio. So like once to twice a year, we'd spin up a new company and we we're always trying different things. And kind of through that process, I became just a student of the studio model and everyone was doing it differently and discovered that you could actually just buy product market fit instead of like you know wandering in the wilderness trying to build it. Um, so that was 
Uh, we did our first acquisition a little over a year ago and kind of have been off to the races since then. Is and the the, the firm now is Vernay? <laughs> yeah, Vern. Uh, Vern. Vern, okay. Vernay is what we call it jokingly uh, after Jules Vern, the science okay. fiction author. I was I was listening to an episode this morning and and I heard Vernay and I was like, oh crap, is it not Vern? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. yeah, okay. Vern likes to say that. So do, did 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 Vern start out of Builders or is it a separate company? Uh, separate. I just spun out with Brent and yeah, similar people working with similar people. But on the on the Builders side, like the startup studio, first of all, does that ever work? Like, are there any? I can think of maybe one or two examples, but like in general, do startup studios work? Uh, some do, some do very well. Uh, Mike Spicer is like the most famous in Sutter Hill. So he has Snowflake and a bunch of different ones. So that was one of the operating manuals I did. Did ours work? Uh, we had a couple of successes. A couple of companies went on to raise like Series A's. Kim's is another famous one out yeah. of Atomic. Uh, Lightbank is uh, another venture capital firm in town. They have Tempest, which is a huge like cancer, cancer gene therapy company, multi-billion dollar success. Yeah, so mm-hmm. some work, many do I think many, many Tinder's now. also uh is what it, wasn't Tinder technically out of IAC's incubator? Yeah, I believe so. Yeah. Yeah. And everyone plays it a little differently and structures it differently. That's why it's you know interesting to look at. But it seems like every rich guy with an exit's like, you know what I want to do? Start startups and not manage them. And yeah. then they just kind of burn <laughs> a bunch of money. They they all want to be rocket. That, that that's the yeah. idea. Now, would you, did you get into this space sort of as part of a greater trend? Like, did you see it happening and you were like, oh, I could do that micro PE thing? Or did you start it and then, and then maybe realize like, oh, well, others are doing this too? What really got me into it was I heard Andrew Wilkinson on a podcast and him like basically describing his life of you know, owning all these companies and not really having a role day to day. I was like, that sounds awesome. I would like that life. <laughs> and so I just uh, you know, started studying up, listening to all his podcasts took a bunch of notes and eventually turned that into an operating manual, which I kind of opened up to the public. Yeah, that's so funny. So I, I discovered Andrew probably around the same time you did. He kind of became big on Twitter, like mid-2020. And uh, and I was like, oh, this guy. And I, I had already read all of Buffett's letters. And so I knew that. You know, I knew Berkshire inside out. I was like, oh, he's doing this for the software world. Uh, and so that, that's really interesting that you kind of had the same thing. And so... You saw that, and then it kind of it kind of happened. I mean, it seemed like it happened pretty quickly. You guys now have four acquisitions. Uh, so we did two last year, and we're closing another bigger one now. Um, and then we started a few other companies. Those are the other ones you see there. Got it. And so you you you've had some success with those you've started. I mean, success in that they're at least around. Yeah, yeah. Uh, it's I mean that the hit rate is very low. We started a lot, um, but some have survived. I, I want to get into them. I've got them up here in front of me now. I was I was actually check, checking out uh, Wixley before this. I was like, wow, that's I mean, candles. It seems like a great business. <laughs> uh, yeah, that that's Brent's thing. He uh, he seems to be passionate about it. <laughs> <laughs> um, so let's let's kind of go back and get into the weeds a little bit. So like you're you started this. Um, I guess you had some background from builders, so you kind of knew a thing or two about finding companies that would work. What are you looking for? Kind of high level. What what's a company that 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 Vern wants? Uh, so SaaS, the business model, that's our focus. And then beyond that, uh, we have a minimum size. So the danger is definitely buying something too small and not having enough for like an operator to be in place. Uh, so 200K to like 5 million. And once you hit 5 million ARR, it starts getting more competitive with more like proper private equity funds playing. Um, besides that, we say a critical use case, uh, unique advantage like brand or niche, you know, low churn, uh, operating history of three years, um, and then a high quality team in place, ideally, but not you know required. 
So is it Constellation software? Is that basically the, 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 the closest uh, analog? Uh, yeah, Mark Leonard is definitely like the king in this space that everyone kind of looks up to. Uh, so he's doing something very similar, for sure. Mark, Mark's Canada. office is literally two blocks that way. And I, I always hope to, to run into him. It hasn't happened. <laughs> no? Yeah, he's a, he's a ghost. That's what everyone says. I'd love yeah. to meet him someday. I, I, th I think it was actually the photo that you shared. I was like, oh, he actually looks like that. Wow. <laughs> yeah, Interesting. That's awesome. Yeah. Um, yeah. For the people listening, he looks like, you know, Gandalf. Allegedly, he's like 6'5, 280, and has a big Gandalf beard that's like a foot and a half long. Right. Right. You'll, you'll, you'll spot him walking the streets of, of Toronto if you look close enough. So, on that note, so that, that, that's sort of the, um, the kind of high level. Is the space that you're in very competitive or is it still, are, are there lots of opportunities? Uh, tons of opportunities. So, I just you know, going back to Mark Leonard and Constellation, they keep a database of things kind of in their perspective range. They've acquired around 500 companies and allegedly they have around 40,000 targets that are in their perspective range, which is similar to us. So is it competitive? Like it's getting more competitive, but like the best player in the industry has bought 500 of the 40,000 targets. Like there's a lot of uh, wealth to go around. Yeah. And, and do you have an end game in mind? I mean, do you have a certain number of companies you want to hit this year, next year? Do you want to eventually... Like what, 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 what's, what's, the, what, what's the goal? Uh, yeah, this year is really like what we're doing is working. It's really about putting people in place and kind of scaling up. That's our goal for this year. So it's not just so dependent on Brett and I to do all the work. But as far as like a pure number goals, not really. Just keep doing it. Keep buying good businesses. Um, that's kind of our plan. Is there a certain number where it becomes... So like one thing, uh, going back to your podcast, um, one thing you were talking about, I guess it was maybe two, three months ago, was like the first acquisition you made, there was a lot of hands-on work. I'm guessing there wasn't enough meat on the bone. So you guys were actually having to, you know, whatever, write the code and like, like you know, take customer service calls or whatever you're doing. Um, is there a certain point? So at what scale does, does the company make sense that you can actually hire an operator? Yeah, that's what we call the 200K. Uh, minimum ARR that because the danger there is you buy too small, uh, you get don't have enough money to hire like a directly responsible individual or like general manager or like BBCO, and then it kind of gets neglected, which is not the end of the world. In these software companies, like they could kind of be neglected and they keep just it's recurring revenue, they keep puts it along, people come in just through SEO and sign up. Uh, but yeah, ideally, you have some directly responsible person for each company. And then that directly responsible person, this is something I'm super interested in because I see like what Cody Sanchez is posting. And obviously, uh, Andrew talks about this. When you're talking about that operator, who, who is an operator that can come in and kind of run a company? Uh, depends on the size. So the bigger stuff we're doing now, the ideal person is like grabbing someone from a competitor that is, has a playbook and has done it at a larger size. Uh, and then for the smaller ones, it's... It's a little harder depending on how much you could pay someone. So like a good operator that isn't trained up is maybe just a smart young person. But we you know, try not to do that. Try to just pay up for someone that has done it before. Yeah. Finding someone who has done it at a, at a larger company, but maybe been a mid-level manager uh, where, where they, they want to take that next step. And this gives them the opportunity to do so. For sure. Yeah. Something along those lines. When did the Twitter thing come in? Were you always on Twitter um, and like, you know, building in public, as they say, or did that start pretty recently too? Uh, I've always been podcasting, uh, mostly interview based. And then Twitter kind of took off with COVID. I mean, everyone's kind of locked up in their houses. I asked one question, got a lot of really good responses, and it was like a little addicting that there's just this like hive mind out there that could answer your questions really well. 
So then I started focusing on it more. And I probably did a tweet a day for like six months or something like that. And then recently I've fallen off. I got to get back to it. I just got you know tied up with some acquisitions. Actual day job stuff. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> on that, like the the idea of building in public, and this is something like that's been there's been a lot of Twitter news about this lately. Um, so the idea of building in public, I guess, what are the pros and cons of 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 doing what you're doing? Uh, the pros, I think it's just like a a serendipity magnet is what I've been calling it. Like it just draws people to you that are interested in uh, similar things. It could be helpful. So I think you know, our next deal will come through Twitter. Our next you know LP will come through Twitter. So that's all the pros. You know, the cons are things like you just saw with Nick Hoover, who yeah. hired a team overseas, which everyone does. So if that's a crime, like everyone's committing that crime. <laughs> uh, he does. He says more outlandish stuff, which he definitely does on purpose. But this one was uh, somewhat unfair or definitely unfair. Um, and he, you know, everyone's attacking his employees, attacking his businesses, and that's kind of the downside. Is that yeah. you Let, let's go back mob. for a second because not not everyone's as as uh, in the loop <laughs> as you and I. So Nick is yeah. a guy on Twitter, sweaty startup. And my my understanding is that he posts. I don't have the tweet in front of me. I'll pull it up. But he posts something along the lines of, "I have thirty ish employees, and eighteen of them are in the Philippines, and I pay them five bucks an hour, which is a great wage. It's higher than the minimum wage. I'm employing them." And this tweet gets taken, put on a Reddit subboard, um, and spread around. And all of a sudden, this guy's getting attacked, death threats, business, you know, threats, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. Uh, and this is a common thing. Like Tim Ferriss has a really good blog post on it of just like the downsides of fame. Like at some point, it's just a numbers game. Like you get you know hundred thousand people follow you, and most of them love you. But if like just 001 percent don't like you, and then some percent of those like are actually gonna think you're a horrible person and give you death threats, and you only really need one person to like really make your life hell. So that's you know the downside of becoming more and more famous in this little world. Yeah. But then, as you said, the upside, and, and you know, it's the same thing for Nick, because he said this uh, as well. I, ironically, he, he did, I think, uh, like a tweet or a podcast episode on this like two weeks prior to this whole incident. But it's like the idea of building in public and having this Twitter following with you know, 180,000 followers, it's brought him funding, it's brought him deal flow, it's brought him a whole lot of good stuff. And then here's the bad stuff happening all at once. Yeah, yeah, for sure. And uh, so... We didn't announce our latest acquisition. We're not announcing the name of it, uh, which I'm kind of on the fence on. I really wanted to, but it does give people just like an angle of attack if you like maybe share too much. So or I think we're going to share as much as we can and keep some stuff private. Yeah. So I've been thinking about that a lot. Obviously, since what happened to Nick, I've been thinking, okay, well, you know, I've, I, I own five businesses. One is, you know, it's out there on my LinkedIn. The other four, I was going to put like, you know, sort of uh, announce, announce them, share them, whatever. And then it got me thinking, like, you have the one route, which is, you know, Cody Sanchez, again, on, on Twitter, you guys can check her out. She doesn't announce anything. Like, no one knows any business that she owns publicly. Uh, and then you have someone like Andrew Wilkinson at Tiny Capital, who, or sorry, Tiny but tinycapital.com is the website, who announces everything. And I, I don't know. I sort of feel like I want to be transparent, but then you see like, oh, these people can actually cause some harm. And then you look at someone like Warren Buffett, who you know, has been doing it for 50 plus years. His companies are all public and you know, he's survived. Yeah. I mean, if you're buying Apple, uh, it's fine. <laughs> and that's going to come out anyway. So I'm not sure he has any choice nowadays. That's true. But but I I agree with you. It's there's 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 good and bad. So do you think at this point you're leaning more towards being conservative or 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 being out there? 
Uh, yeah, I'm still going to continue building in public, still going to keep building my Twitter and podcasts and all that stuff. I do wonder if at some point, like I just never show my face again, kind of pull a Mark <laughs> Leonard and like, there's only so many photos of you in existence. And then people know like, you know, what I used to look like as I get older and older and like my voice and my words, but that's about it. Yeah. Yeah. I hear you. Um, what do you think of the, of the solopreneurs? That's another sort of t- Twitter trend. And when I say a, a Twitter trend, if it's happening on Twitter, it's probably also happening in the real world to some extent. There's a lot of solopreneurs. And I've just kind of picked up on this trend. From what I understand, it's people that are building companies that can run either with one person themselves or uh, you know, basically with no maintenance. Is this a thing that you think can, can like sustain itself or is this more of a trend? It requires a lot of skills. I think the number of people that can do that well is pretty low. I do think so. A lot of solopreneurs have these like good high margin internet companies. So, like starting a course, you could do that and then you could maybe farm out the marketing to someone else. So, maybe that is more attainable for folks. I think more and more people should have courses where they, you know, they learn something and just share with other folks. I think a lot of people could benefit from that. Yeah. And, and it's also, I mean, a, co- a course business is great because you, you do it once and you can sell it a million times. And also, um, I mean, as, as you said, it can, it can run with basically nobody there to, uh, to do it. Yeah. It's harder with you know, SaaS or you know, more involved companies, e-commerce, that kind of thing. Do you play it all? I noticed I like the name of your podcast is Creators uh, or sorry, Creator Stories. Um, do you, did you come from or are you part of the creator economy at all? Uh, yeah, I have a course, ndpe.com. I, I moved it over to Teachable and haven't had time to finish the website, but I'll get a nice landing page back up. So I ran a course last year. Um, and then we had this uh, avocado, this audio course business. So I've spoken with you know hundreds of these course creators. Um, so pretty deep in that space. And do you think the creator world... So I've been in that world for 7, 8 years now. Is that... like When, when I got started in the creator world, it was all about just getting brand sponsor deals. And there seems to be more business models now around you know, obviously courses and professional services. And uh, a lot of them are getting into crypto, which we'll talk about in a second. But w- like, do you think that people will actually, in 5 years or maybe sooner, be making a living? A lot of people be making a living just doing these things? I think a lot of people can. I think a lot of people have some knowledge inside them that would be beneficial if they shared it out. Um, so trying to figure out some productized offering of what you're currently doing, I think is really good. Uh, the question becomes of like, you just need a lot of eyeballs. So even if you have really good content, you have to kind of become a really good marketer, which I think a lot of people don't have that skill. They don't have the ability to produce a bunch of content or you know, buy the paid ads that they need to do to actually make you know 100K a year or whatever they need to live. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's the idea of getting, and I think you said this. It's like, can you know, do you have a hundred thousand people that are willing to pay you a dollar, or do you have a thousand people that are willing to pay you a hundred dollars a year? Uh, figuring out that math is really important. For sure, yeah, uh, you see a lot of this with Web three too and NFTs of like you know these kind of starving artists are now becoming very very wealthy because there's better better ways to monetize their work. So I, mm-hmm. I love seeing that trend. I hope stuff like that continues. So on that note, and I've got a bunch of more questions here I want to ask you about Vern, but on that note, it seems like listening to you and watching your tweets, you're also a crypto guy. So how did you get into that? And, and <laughs> do you consider yourself a crypto guy? Uh, no, I don't. Uh, I like to play in it for sure. It's certainly not my day job, but like nights and weekends or like Saturday mornings when gas fees are low, I like to mess around. Uh, so I just am trying to understand kind of where the future is. And I think it's worth you know investing the time to get good at it. But 
Uh, I'm not. Like, I don't spend all day. I think to be really good at DeFi and all that stuff, you have to be there all day, every day, researching new protocols to make a good amount of money. Um, but I, I'm not that person. I just follow some people that are good and kind of dabble in it. Yeah. I, I, have you actually purchased NFTs? Or I, I know you did the thing with the Constitution, the the, the DAO. And I, I, I sort of heard that story about how you were beaten by Ken Griffin, as many people are. <laughs> yeah. The recurring villain of the internet. Exactly. Exactly. So the but the idea of of like some of it seems really really cool. Like the idea of smart contracts, I think is great. And um, you know, uh, you know, a lot of the functionality of it. But the part that gets me and the reason that I'm so you know generally disinterested and disengaged with it is because a lot of it just seems like gambling. I mean, you're going to buy this coin. Maybe it goes up. Maybe it goes down. But even if you were right, I don't know that you're that smart for having done it. Yes. So I, I'm not an NFT buyer. Like I own a few that were just kind of given to me, which is happens if you have your name being public. Um, so I, I think 99% of NFTs are going to zero. So that's like my true opinion. I think some will have some significant value in the future, but just like the early things of you know different types of work. Uh, I, I like DeFi more. I think decentralized finance has a lot of you know future, uh, a lot of promise at least. Um, so more and more stuff will move there. I think the mullet apps where it's like a Traditional finance in the front end, um, and then DeFi in the back end have a lot of potential. Can you explain DeFi for those of us who are not as uh, attuned? Uh, yeah, so it's, it's uh, tradfi. So traditional finance is like the banking world that you know, getting mortgages, you know, bank accounts, stuff like that. Uh, decentralized finance is basically recreating everything in traditional finance or centralized finance, but in a decentralized manner. So like I could you know put up one Bitcoin and take a loan out against it and use that loan to go buy something, something along those lines. Got it. And 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 so in that transaction, so I own a Bitcoin and I'm taking a loan out. Who who's giving me the loan? Uh, so these are protocols that just get set up and then it's like other individuals on the uh, the backside of it. Got it. So so that that's sort of the point. It's 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 decentralized in the sense that anybody can effectively say. Okay, you know this is a Bitcoin that's used as collateral, and so I'll I'll make a loan against that. Yeah, and so you think of how many people the banks employ. All that is just kind of uh, overhead that is maybe not really necessary in this decentralized world. So the interest rates and everything could be better. And if you just cut out the middleman effectively, is what DeFi is. So is DeFi? I mean, I could see obviously the the adoption amongst uh, consumers and, and professionals. Is this something that banks are threatened by, or are they embracing it somehow? Yeah, most of them are starting to embrace it. The the hardcore DeFi people would say this is going to, you know, overthrow the banks. I think the banks just have so much distribution and like customer relationships, it's not realistic. Uh, it probably is some kind of, you know, melding or merging at some point. So, do you do you think there's a future cuz the way I like, you know, pessimistically see it is that you would have a situation where the bank basically comes out and says, "Great, this this is our DeFi product and you can you can get it from us." Is that is there a version of, of that that happens? Yeah, I think so. If you start messing around in the DeFi world and like you get your hardware wallet and your MetaMask and everything, the user experience is just horrible. Like it's just really, really hard to do anything. I find it hard and I've been doing it for uh, you know six months now. I think there's probably a future where it just is in the back end and it powers banks in a more efficient manner. Um, but then the front end is you know, about the same. So, you know, your mom could still use it and not be you know, concerned about this weird uh, crypto thing. So I, I want to go back to to uh, Vern for a minute here. I've got a few more questions. So first off, when you're looking at these companies to buy, 
Are you looking at synergies? So do you want to buy companies where they can share services like HR and accounting and that sort of thing or not really? Not really. No. Um, there's some, there's like shared playbooks, I think, between companies. And then ideally, each company kind of stands on its own. I think there's always some animosity if you like your know, force synergies. And so we're not really doing that too much. Okay, so this is something that I, I, I talked to Andrew once about this, uh, and Andrew Wilkinson as well. And the question I have there is, so I understand the idea of we're not going to force synergies, and we're not going to, you know, make you use this service or that service. But doesn't that like isn't the downside pretty pretty bad there because you're effectively having so much redundancy that you could chop out pretty quickly? And how disruptive is it to say to somebody, "Hey, here's your payroll system. Use A instead of B." Like, wh what do they care anyways? Yeah, I think so. That goes back to the playbooks of like, hey, this is the payroll system we use. So you're not forcing it on anyone. I think that's the distinction. But using a playbook of like, hey, this is our accounting firm. Like, we recommend you use this for you know payroll in this country, that kind of thing. I think that saves time. It's when you step in too much uh, that you know kind of could piss people off. Got it. So if someone says to you, no, no, I'm I'm dead set on using that accounting firm, you're not going to arm wrestle them uh, for it. <laughs> right. Yeah. I got gotcha. you. Everyone does this uh, a little differently. People like so all the folks I've looked at, Mark Leonard, you know, Robert F. Smith, Joe Lamont, and ESW, they all view synergies differently and it's kind of a spectrum. So we lean more on the like not synergized spectrum. And I've heard Charlie Munger say, like, we we could, I can't remember what the example was. It might have been accounting firms. He could have said, you know, we could have, we could mandate every Berkshire Hathaway company use this firm and literally save $25 million a year. But the hassle or the cost of doing that with morale or whatnot is just not worth it. Yeah. Uh, it I, also makes, I think some of it is like designing a life for those guys. And if they were, you know, stepping in operationally, I don't think they would enjoy that either. Right. Right. Um, and then any more... Um, I mean, how, how big is your pipeline at any, at any given time? Are you looking at like 20, 30 companies and you'll close one out of there? What, what do the ratios look like? I'd have to think about it. I don't know. Maybe a 20%, 10% to like an actual LOI to an offer. That's pretty high. Yeah. I try not to take too many meetings. I try to get as much information as I can before... you know. Uh, it's only for companies that I'm actually like really interested in. Yeah. I, I, that, that's that's a great a great tactic and and are the I mean I know you said you have some deal flow coming in from Twitter. Do you have like I mean I, I know you guys used a broker one time and it didn't go so great. Are you guys um, just doing a lot of networking? Like are you just outreach to entrepreneurs and that sort of thing? Yeah, uh, so uh, we're just starting up like a real outbound email campaign. That's you know how you do this at scale. Um, but so far, it's been a lot of networking. Uh, we kind of came from this you know, space before. So we have people that you know, know us for it and share stuff with us. Yeah. Folks that might not have been right at, at Builders might, might be good now kind of thing. Yeah. A lot of like kind of long-term relationships. We are always meeting with people that you know, maybe will sell to us in a couple of years or something like that when it's the right time. Right. So, um, and one last question on, on Vern. At what point does a, does a private equity or micro private equity firm actually pay your bills? Because the structure I'm thinking of is you've got a bunch of companies. Let's say you've got four now. Let's say you have 10 by the end of the year. And there's a certain amount of cash flow they're spinning, they're, they're spinning off. And then that goes up to HQ. Have you actually done the math to say, okay, here's how many businesses we need so I can take a salary of X, which I'm happy with? One we're going to acquire, we're actually going to step in and go on salary for like three to six months as we're hiring replacements for ourselves. So I would say 
it really depends on just the size of the businesses and what they can support. I guess if you're if you're in the business operating it, then you're paying yourself the CEO salary, so that's fine. Um, but yeah, it, it's it's I'm I'm interested to kind of understand, and I've I've done the math for my own businesses just to understand this. But like you know, if you're if you're buying these businesses, I'm sure at a certain point, just like any other uh, VC or private equity firm, real estate firm, there's 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 an, a number at which you say, okay, there's enough scale here that we can take a payday as well. Yeah, we've mostly just been reinvesting back in the business, so we haven't been doing that as much, but. For sure, at yeah. some point. What, what does your math say? Where did you end up? That's a good question. So, I mean, I would say if you have a support team, and it's just so it's just you and Brent right now, right? Uh, we have a lot of contractors and some other folks that are you know, working in different capacities. So, yeah, I would say if you can run a pretty lean team, like two or three people, or let's say two full timers and, and a bunch of contractors, like you have, you know. Half a million bucks a year is is plenty, uh, you know. Especially if you're running it remote, you're not you're not paying for big, big uh, glitzy offices, that sort of thing. Um, but you're right. I, I, the temptation, and you know, I've I've got a lot of friends who who are in the real estate development business. The temptation is you get a big payday. You want to put pretty much all that back into the into the uh, into working capital. So it's like you get a half a million. It's like, well, I want to want to take that, or do I want to put four hundred and fifty back in right now. Yeah, for sure. Uh, keeping life expenses low lets you continue to reinvest for sure. But that is absolutely, absolutely. So on these operating manuals, so this is actually this is the thing, and I don't know how many people nerd out to to, to this like I do, but I've read all these things. Uh, so Mark Leonard really interested me, and uh, I, I actually had never heard of ESW before. That was a brand new one, super interesting. There, how did you? I wanted to uh, dig into one of these, but how did you actually, or why did you start these things? Uh, so I take a lot of notes personally, and that's just kind of how I organize my thinking and like get the most out of it. It's like putting it into practice. Uh, so I took all these notes on Andrew was the first one. And then I was like, I'll just set this live. I bet this is interesting to other people. And I, maybe I talked with a few folks. They were like, yeah, you should definitely set that live. So that went well. And then it's just been looking at like adjacent people. So Mike Spicer in Sutter Hill, he is the most successful like venture studio. And then... You know, Mark Leonard is who Andrew Wilkinson looked up to. And I was like, I should probably learn that. And then Robert F. Smith has the famous quote of all software tastes like chicken. Yeah. I was like, oh, I, why does he say that? I should look into that. <laughs> and then Joe Lamont is an interesting one where he is like... Uh, so if Andrew Wilkinson is kind of billing himself as like the nice guy, Joe Lamont is like the not nice guy basically in this space where it's yeah. much more acquiring like failing companies, fire everyone, and then like tech sweatshops. Where it's like very much you could insert someone, take someone out, and it's a very much like a assembly line. Yeah. So these operating manuals, if anyone's interested, ColinKeeley.com uh, is where they are, and they're almost written like I don't know essays, or I mean they're they're pretty they're pretty robust. How, how, how do you research these things? Basically, read everything I can, listen to podcasts if they've been on podcasts, and take notes. Um, and then after I put something live, I get a bunch of people that. Uh, like worked for the company that reach out to me, and really? I, I don't I don't share everything. Like I, I try not to. I don't want anyone to treat me like a journalist or something. But yeah, you know, some stuff I add in. Interesting. You actually have folks reach out to you and say, "Hey, you know, you missed this, or you wouldn't believe that." Uh, yeah, for every single one, basically. Oh, that's so interesting. Wow. And do these you just sh- share them on Twitter? Have you ever had the person reach out to you? Oh yeah, like uh, Andrew. I reached out. He wanted me to correct a few things, which is like, oh yeah, for sure. Like no big deal. And then he came to town and we grabbed dinner in Chicago. Um, so he's the only one I've met in person. 
I hope to meet you know the rest of them over the course yeah. of time. <laughs> it's really funny. P- people look at this and think this is going to become like the de facto, you know, the, the the book of their life. So they they want to make sure the facts are right. Yeah, it's probably a good idea because uh, Google like Google loves these things. It's like the number one result for most of these people now. Yeah, yeah, and I'm sure it, it influences the Wikipedia page and that sort of thing. So Joe Lamont, uh, ESW Capital, started a computer software company. And so, as you said, he's the kind of guy who will buy something and kind of tear it to shreds. He doesn't care who he fires. He doesn't care about, about, you know, um, about the, the human impact per se. He cares about getting it to work financially. And then you have someone like, like Andrew Wilkinson at Tiny who you know, wants to keep things pretty much intact and it's you know, trying to, to have good vibes, that sort of thing. So let me ask you this. All the folks you've looked at, are more of them like Joe or like Andrew or somewhere in the middle? Uh, so it really depends on the target. So I would say Andrew buys good companies and good companies don't require a teardown. Joe buys basically failing enterprise uh, SaaS companies. And so he just has a, uh, like an army of folks, uh, low-paid folks, just reaching out to everyone in existence and it, making really low-ball offers. And the only people that accept those are the, like the companies that are failing. So his behavior like fits the companies that he's buying. And so it's not like they could support high-priced people. It's more like this company's dying. We got to you know cut everyone and make it to like a sustainable place. So the people that work for him, I'd say most of them don't view him as like an evil man. It's just like, you know, this is the model that works for you know the businesses he's buying. Yeah. And and you know it's funny, I bet if you talk to someone like Joe, I'm not even sure that he would say that he's you know evil or doing anything immoral. He's simply buying assets that that need to be turned around. If they didn't need to be turned around, he wouldn't be buying them. Right. Yeah, hundred percent. And so, where do most people fall? Most people fall somewhere in the middle, for sure. Yeah, yeah. Do you think about so sort of a, a tangential question? But when you're buying, a, I guess you buy mostly software businesses. What kinds of things are you okay fixing versus what? What are you saying? Well, no, if that's not working, we're not buying it. Uh, so looking at the technical stuff, we're happy to take on tech debt. If the business is actually unstable, we probably won't even make an offer. Um, so if we don't feel like we could, you know, take it over and keep everything running, so tech debt's cool. Uh, a team, a team in place is great. We don't necessarily need one. Um, ideally, te- keep like the CTO or whoever runs the system in place. But beyond that, we're happy taking everything over. But, uh, yeah, I mean that's kind of limits. We're open to a lot of different, you know, Re- recurring revenue. I assume. Oh yeah, for SaaS for sure. Yeah. Yeah, and uh, not not for the candle business. That's that's okay. No, that was uh, an earlier acquisition. You got to talk to Brent about that one. Okay. Yeah, that, that's, that's interesting. And, and so um, the assets, like if someone came to you and said, okay, well, here's a company, it makes a lot of money, but then you looked at it and said, okay, we basically have to rewrite the code. Um, that, that's okay. As long as it was good enough, we would just make an offer with like a lower multiple. And then if it was you know, not a ton of work, you just like factor in whatever the, you know, the cost is uh, to the payback period. And are you thinking of, are there certain verticals that you're kind of looking to do bolt-ons or you're trying to say, have you, I get, you, you haven't been doing it for that long, but are you looking at this and kind of saying, okay, this worked really well. Let's buy more companies in this vertical. Uh, we're looking at a lot of API first companies so that our recent acquisition is kind of in that space. Um, I, we like it. They're super sticky. Once something gets integrated in the code that really gets taken out. So churn is really low. It's, I think, less competitive. So a lot of the people kind of doing this thing are MBAs, more like myself. 
and uh, Brent is like a, a deep technical person. So many of them don't have that deep technical person as a partner. So that kind of opens up that space a little more to us than to other people. API first would be that it's it's a piece of software that people integrate into their software products such that it becomes a part of their product. Yeah, yeah. Like uh, developer tools, things that are more focused uh, integrating with developers. Yeah. Are, are you are you tech knowledgeable enough that you would understand that on your own? Or is that really more of, of a brand thing? Um, I can understand the market and like the competitive landscape over time. Uh, but yeah, I'm not uh, integrating. I, I, I'm good at Webflow. Uh, Webflow is like the extent of my technical knowledge. Yeah. I'm not j- diving in the code ever. What do you think of companies built on another ecosystem like a Salesforce or a Shopify app or Facebook apps? Do you like those or do you think there's too much risk? Uh, so we call these barnacles on a whale. So uh, it's <laughs> Barnac- I've been writing that down. Barnacles on a whale. <laughs> it's a great approach if you pick the right whale, right? So you got to find someone that's going well. Um, so there's a bunch of them. Obviously, Shopify is super popular. People really like that. And there's a bunch of newer ones that are popping up. And we haven't made an acquisition in the space, but we've looked at some. I definitely like Webflow. That's an interesting one that's less competitive right now. Yeah, a buddy of mine just sold... I don't know if it's public, so I, I shouldn't say the name of it. But a buddy of mine just sold a company to Salesforce. And his whole company was built in the Salesforce marketplace. And it, it, uh, it, you know, it, it does a pretty cool thing. But the problem with that... And it's a great company, great exit for him. But the problem with that is, I kind of thought, well, who else could you possibly exit to? I, I, mean, I guess you could exit to a private equity firm, but there's no big company that's going to buy it other than Salesforce. So like Andrew Wilkinson is doing a roll-up kind of of Shopify apps. So I think you could... I think more and more people uh, like spin up and do something like that. But you could grab... There's probably some more synergies in that space where if you do like Chrome extensions, you could sell, you know, cross sell on other Chrome extensions or uh, Webflow, Shopify, Figma, like any of the big kind of growing platforms. Chrome extensions are interesting. I've I've heard that they're they're not very profitable, or most of them make very little money, and some make a ton of money. Uh, Shopify apps actually seem like a really cool a cool idea, and WeCommerce is doing a great job there um, because I think what's interesting there is that. It's not a consumer. It's, you're not helping a consumer do things better. You're helping a business run, which is, I mean, as you said, it's mission critical. When you're Shopify, when you're Salesforce, when you're a Facebook app, it's like it's fun, but people could just stop doing this. Yeah, it's easy to justify too for Shopify apps where it's like clear they're making you more money. So then you're kind of happy to pay them whatever. And Shopify is a perfect case of like that's a good, fast growing platform that you can be confident it's going to be bigger in 10 years. So mm-hmm. and then distribution is just like nicely built in, like get a bunch yeah. of five star reviews and you get more and more installs. Do you, do you see? I'm not sure if you're if you're into Shopify very much. It's a company that I follow closely. Do you see Shopify as like? Is there any threat to them, or do you think they're just a whale that's going to be going on for years? I think they're going to go for years. I like people try to sell with Webflow or something. I don't see any real competition, and Amazon is just so. Uh, Opposite of the business, Amazon's like building the empire, and you know Shopify is very much arming the rebels, and those are just like two different approaches to business. Both you know valid, but uh, yeah, I'm a big believer in Shopify. Yeah, Business Week did a cover story on uh, on Shopify, and and Toby Lutke, the CEO, and he said um, something to the effect of Amazon is like they're the player. If they revived their Shopify competitor, that's the player that that could maybe. Um, pose a threat, but I, I'm, I'm with you. I, I just think it, the product is so beautiful, hard to see how, how you'd switch. 
yeah, it's just a lot better than everything else. And so is um, a couple more questions on Vern. Is is um, being founder friendly, this is going to sound like a silly question, but just hear me out here. Is being founder friendly really important in the sense that if you have a bigger check or if somebody else has a bigger check, do you think being more quote unquote friendly matters? Uh, it has for us. We've definitely, I mean, you get better deals, uh, better prices. So people have chosen us over other competitive offers because you know they listen to our podcast and kind of get to know us and believe we're good people and not going to destroy kind of their legacy. So it seems to matter. And you know, most private equity people are much more you know, finance savvy and they don't actually have operational experience. So founders generally like talking with and like selling to other founders more so. Yeah, I've had... Uh, so I mean, I've sold one company years ago and I've had a lot of uh, you know VC conversations over the years, not as much recently. But one thing I found, uh, and you were in this business, you can tell me if it's, if it's normal. There's like a ton of questions, 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 questions. And then the deal doesn't go through and you realize, oh, we weren't even close. Like they were asking 10 companies all those questions. Is that, is that a normal thing? Uh, some, yeah, there's a lot of bad behavior. Some are like, uh, we'll just use it as fact finding, like for their you know competitive uh, companies in their portfolio. But otherwise, the VC's job is to be kind of likable and be around for when they want to get in. So th- many of them are like afraid to say no. They like, they won't say no. It'll just be like a, a long drawn out process where, oh yeah, we're interested. We're interested. And it's like, well, if some big lead comes in, then they're actually interested and then they'll put in a check. But otherwise they just like, Kind of, you know, you know, killing time, getting to know you. Yeah, I totally agree. I think it, it might actually be a fact. I don't think any VC has ever said no. They just, they just keep the conversation going and never invest. Yeah, I mean, the really good ones will say no, and they'll give you good feedback, um, which I always tried to do. So if I, I would give someone a clear no, like you know, a week later or something, and say no for these reasons, and so that was always my hope of like, you know. Uh, Colin didn't invest in us, but he gave good feedback and he's very thoughtful about it. And you should talk to him on your next, next business or something like that. What do you think your superpower is uh, that makes you good at what you do? Because you said you're not the technical first guy. Why do you think you're good as an investor and, and as, as a PE operator? I'm good at getting up to speed quickly. Uh, I do a, a lot of research, put in a lot of work. I move quickly and then I'm kind of on to the next thing. So I love this kind of deal-based living. I love the highs and lows of it. I really live for like the negotiation. Um, so that, just getting up to speed quickly is probably you know my superpower, if anything. Do you do you have certain? Are you the kind of guy that like looks at you know where you buy lunch every day or sees whatever's going on like in your neighborhood and say, oh, there, there's a business there, or oh, they could do this better? Oh yeah, uh, I love. <laughs> And like improving things around me, all I see is like, you know, problems like this should be fixed, this should be fixed, which maybe isn't a healthy way to live, but that's kind of how I'm wired. So, you know, always trying to improve for sure. Yeah. I, I had a plumber come to my house recently. We had some, some water problems and I just noticed there were like three or four things he did differently. He texts me all the time. He doesn't call. He texts, which I love. The bills, uh, he, he sent a bill in and said, you know, you can pay it. You have 15 days to pay it, which I thought that's that's really cool. Usually plumbers like want the cash on site. And so it's just like two or three things. And I was like, I can see why this guy's going places because he just does these things better. Oh yeah. A local businesses for sure. I a lot of low-hanging fruit there that could be improved. 
Tons, tons. Um, so I want to, we'll, we'll finish up in a couple minutes here, but I just want to ask you a couple more questions about some of these businesses that are on your operating manual. So you did a deep dive into Quibi. Um, it's, it's a bit dated now, um, but uh, I, I was actually just looking into um, Wonderco, the, the company that you know, founded Quibi. Do you think, um, so is, is entertainment a, a category that you know about at all or are you interested in? Uh, I like content, uh, obviously, with my own content and you know the podcast and stuff. Uh, I, I started my uh, entrepreneurial journey at a TV and movie recommendation company, so I'm pretty passionate about movies. Uh, yeah, yeah. I guess I'm in, into entertainment and the business and strategy of it. Do you think there'll be like so the, the category that Quibi played in obviously competes with Netflix, Amazon Prime, all all these players? Do you think there's any disruption um, that 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 a, that a small company could bring to that space, or do you think that's a pretty cemented arena right now? There's always disruption that can be had. Uh, I think of it as like there's a lot of when podcasting was just like starting getting big, they podcast studios would pop up and make like a bunch of different true crime podcasts, or a bunch of different scary story podcasts. I think you could do that now. Like you could become really good at making TikTok videos, and you can make you know become a TikTok studio and do TikTok videos for all different types of things. Um, mm-hmm. That would be an obvious way, just making really good content for whatever the big platforms are. When it comes to mission critical software, uh, do you see any any areas like are, are there things that you're kind of wanting to invest in or wanting to find that that you're not finding right now? Uh, no, right now we're we have a much bigger deal that we're just raising money for. Um, so not as focused on the outward looking right now, just really focused on taking like you know ten LP meetings a day. So. Uh, wow. I thought you said right you, 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 tr- you try to avoid meetings. Oh, are you, you know. sorry, are you, are you raising money? Yeah, we're raising money. So that's like a you know, huge distraction at the moment. Okay. Did, did the early money come in from like, uh, what, how, how did you start? What, what, what was the initial capital? Initial capital is our own money and then our own money plus debt. It's like a very much a leverage buyout of like the 80s where we didn't put much of our own equity. Um, and now the ones going forward, the larger ones we raise equity for. And is that is is that a hassle? I mean, it's a hassle, obviously. But is it is it hard, or are you actually able to to raise the money? Uh, it's hard, as in like it's a lot of work and a lot of meetings. Um, but the response has been very positive. Uh, there's a lot of demand for these like recurring revenue software companies at not venture capital prices. So the first one kind of sucks, but I think all future ones will be you know much easier easier to fill out. That's interesting. Are, are they coming? Is it is it sort of individual high net worth institutions? Who 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 you're raising from? A lot of family offices. Yeah, it's kind of all over. Yeah, yeah. Well, that 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 seems like a pretty. I mean, you've been doing this for I think about a year now, so it seems like you're advancing pretty quickly. Um, I guess so. The next step for you is then just kind of raising a fund and being able to have more firepower here. Uh, so that's a discussion we haven't decided on. So you could either raise a fund, so then you get a pool of capital and deploy it across you know, multiple companies, or, or what we're doing now is called independent sponsor. So you raise on a deal-by-deal basis. And that's kind of nice because then the carry is calculated all independently. Um, and it's also much easier to sell a business like, as an investment than like, hey, you should invest with us. And we're going to invest in these like, five companies, but we don't know what those five companies are yet. Just right. give us this like, blind pool of capital. So I don't, I don't know. We'll see where the next you know year or two goes. At so your point is probably like a proper fund. You're raising money on on a deal by deal basis. You're you're identifying a target and then raising capital for it. Correct. Yeah. Got it. Got it. And there's got to be a time crunch there because you only have so long to raise the financing before you you, you no longer have access to the company. 
Yeah. So you get exclusivity. Uh, it's definitely like somewhat stressful. It's like, you know, I'm going to go buy that Ferrari. Oh, hold on a minute. Like I got to go make the money to you know buy that Ferrari <laughs> real quick. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. That's interesting. I mean, that's it, kind of how a, I think a lot of real estate deals are done that way. You know, you raise on a deal by deal basis, but yeah, raising a fund to say, Hey, I'm going to deploy this. Investors have to really trust you and trust that you're actually going to make good decisions with their money. Yeah, absolutely. So it's all kind of about building that track record. So hopefully you get a couple of successful deals under us and then they'll believe in us and give us you know, a more blind pool of capital. Well, we, we can wrap it up here. I feel like this... I mean, I, I really enjoyed talking to you. I feel like the conversation was all over the place, but hopefully people can, uh, can, can get a sense for what you're doing and follow along. Where can people find you? Uh, ColinKeely.com or Colin Keeley on Twitter. Um, my DMs are open. You know, happy to chat with folks. Beauty. Colin, I really enjoyed this. Thank you so much for, uh, for coming on today. Yeah, great to meet you. Uh, it's been fun. All right. I really enjoyed that conversation. It was a bit all over the place. We covered a lot of ground in about 45, 50 minutes. I might have to ask uh, Colin to come back because I realized there was a whole bunch we didn't even cover. I wanted to ask him questions about the various businesses he's investing in. Maybe we'll give it a few months, have him back on the show if you guys liked it. Uh, get me on Twitter at RealJohnDavids, R-E-A-L-J-O-N-D-A-V-I-D-S. Hashtag making it. Would love to hear what you guys think. We'll talk to you soon.